You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two just energetic and radiant co-hosts here, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And we are joined this week by Dr. Lisa Grant, who is a colleague of mine here in Vegas that I am so delighted to have on because she and I bounce back and forth all the time, questions about fertility as it relates to both of our patients. And she is a doctor who specializes in, and help me get this right, Lisa, so that I say it correctly, because I know your initials are OMD and it's Oriental Medicine Doctor. Am I, did I have the right set of letters? You've got the right set of letters. It's Oriental. <laughs> and so we're going to be talking to her today about acupuncture, which is fabulous because it's something that we get questions about this all the time. And it's a fabulous adjunct treatment to have, but you have to have somebody that you trust. And so I am delighted to have Lisa on. And we've been talking about this really since we started the podcast, Lisa, because I remember back in 2020, we were having a discussion of, oh, hey, we just started this and, and all those things. But first, before you got into the world of Eastern medicine, what kind of jobs did you have earlier in life? What was your path before you got to this world? My first job, which is the random one, was a pasta maker, a fresh pasta maker. Ooh, nice. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Mom was a chef in residence for a very small imported Italian foods company in San Antonio, Texas, and I needed a summer job. Yep. Yep. So they were looking for somebody and I was like, sure. So I made pasta in the morning and I went to springboard diving camp in the afternoon. So are you originally a central Texas girl? No, my dad was military. We were in San Antonio because dad was stationed there. That's still cool. Yeah. So that was probably the most interesting, like random job that I had. The path that I followed before I got into oriental medicine, actually, I was a Japanese cross-cultural business communication and Japanese language translator. Wow. That's a pretty interesting job. Everybody immediately jumps to, oh, and that's where you got interested in acupuncture. And the answer is no, I didn't do anything at all with acupuncture at all when I was in Japan because I was focused on business and translation and running meetings and doing all that sort of stuff. That's such a cool life though. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, being a military brat, it's like I tended to spend a lot of my time outside of the US when dad was bouncing around. So, and I spent a lot of time overseas when I was an adult too. So yeah, a lot of different places. I didn't realize that you were fluent in Japanese. Do you speak other languages too? Like, is it once you pick up Japanese, is it kind of like, are there any corollary languages? Like if you pick up a romance language, you get, you know, four for the price of one. 
Don't I wish. Japanese doesn't have a corollary language with anything else that is spoken. What's interesting is the Japanese ideograms, the characters, those are all borrowed from Chinese. So you can have somebody who's Japanese and Chinese and they cannot speak to each other in their languages. But they can write to each other? To a certain extent, because a lot of the main characters are the same. Yeah. They pronounce differently and over the years, because we're talking like, you know, um, a millennia and a half. So 1500 years of borrowing and reborrowing and reimporting. So some of the words, some of the characters don't mean the same thing as they did originally. And they're used in different contexts. But yeah, most of my friends in Japan, they said when they went to China to visit, they could get around no problem at all, because as long as they could either read the sign or write out the characters. But no, no, there's only one for the price of one when you're speaking it, <laughs> when you're doing Japanese. <laughs> That seems to make sense. I mean, it's fair. Yeah. And once I did Japanese, I was like, yeah, I don't want to do anything else. This took a lot of effort. Have you retained it or is that something like it's just hard to retain it if you don't use it a lot or? There is a large amount of use it or lose it. I do retain it. My secret indulgence is I watch a lot of Japanese drama and a lot of um, Japanese anime with all the new apps. I can actually turn off the closed captioning and listen to it. But if I don't understand it, I'll rewind it, turn the closed captioning back on and look at the English and go, oh, that's what they said. Um, (laughs) Because I'd rather not lose the plot line, right? I mean, you know, and I actually on my own, I do meet with a tutor once a week just because it's my happy place. Oh, very cool. All right. Well, Susan, what are our questions of the day? Okay, so our first one is, hi there. First of all, I'd like to thank you for running your wonderful podcast. Um, I've been struggling with infertility for the past three years and listening to your podcast has been a lifesaver for me. I am 39 years old. I have suffered from recurrent pregnancy loss, five miscarriages, three from natural pregnancies, three following IVF. I have a heart-shaped uterus, but no other abnormalities. My numbers are good. My husband's are as well. He's 44. They've gone through four rounds of IVF, three resulted in pregnancy, but ultimately miscarried between six to 11 weeks. They live in Germany and PGT is not a standard procedure. We have until now no possibility to test our embryo prior to a transfer. I have two questions. One, is it still worth going for another round of IVF at my age without genetic testing? What are my chances to get pregnant considering my age? Or in other words, when should I start looking for alternatives? Two, is the anatomy of my uterus the main reason why I cannot stay pregnant? Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. Warm wishes. So PGT is not going to change the result of what happens, but it will help to narrow down some abnormalities from the get-go. And when you've been through so many miscarriages, the goal is let's get through the stuff that's not going to work as fast as possible and get straight to the embryos that have a higher chance of working. And there's a really good chance that part of the reason you're having difficulties is from genetic abnormalities. And we see that even with our younger patients, it becomes more prominent after 35, but it certainly exists before 35. So this may be something, and we had a similar question a couple of weeks ago, I think, from a, a German patient who doesn't have access to PGT because of laws within that country. And you know, and you can certainly come to the States. Like we've got a lot of German patients who come for that specific reason, but that's a big haul across a big pond. Well, in the military too, I think there's certain bases where IVF can be done. I don't know if they do PGT at any of those bases. Maybe they don't, but I know in the United States, there's several bases that people go to, to do IVF that are in the military. Yeah. So I want to come back to this part, but to kind of address the heart-shaped uterus. So if it's truly just an arcuate uterus, data shows that it probably is not 
the cause of you losing the pregnancies. I mean, the most likely cause, because I'm assuming you've had a recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation that included chromosomes for both of you, prolactin levels, thyroid hormone levels, and looking for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, that the most likely cause is that the embryos you are creating are potentially chromosomally abnormal. Not always. Even when we're in our 20s, half the embryos we create are chromosomally abnormal. As we age, that percentage increases. Most of those chromosomally abnormal embryos never implant. Those that do implant, most are lost in miscarriage. If you just have an arcuate uterus, it probably isn't. Now, if you have a septum, even a partial septum, then potentially having a hysteroscopy, which is usually an outpatient procedure where we use a little telescope instrument and little bitty teeny tiny scissors could improve your chances. So it is something to kind of look at. But I'm intrigued. This is our second case of PGT in Germany and that type of thing. So you can't do PGT in Germany proper. Is it illegal if you are German to go elsewhere to do PGT? No, it's fine to go somewhere else. It's just the travel and expense involved with that that makes it prohibitive at times. Germany is relatively centrally located. I mean, you don't necessarily have to come to the U.S. to do PGT. Couldn't you do it in other European countries where it's permitted? Yeah, you can go to France or Spain or... To me, it's like going to another state. Yeah. I mean, I'm in Texas. I'm as big as a lot of countries put together. <laughs> Everything's bigger in Texas. Yes. Hey, one comment I wanted to make about the uterus too is usually if a miscarriage occurs because of the uterus, we feel like it's more related to second trimester loss rather than the first trimester loss. I think all of hers were in the first trimester. So I just echo what Carrie and Susan said in terms of the genetic part. And like Carrie said, it really won't change the outcome, but it'll change all the you know, the sorrow you've gone through emotionally and physically with all those miscarriages, because if you did IVF and you were able to do PGT, even if the results were bad, meaning all of your embryos were genetically abnormal, you know, at least that may help you close the door on maybe using your own eggs and maybe move on to use donor eggs or donor embryos or some other alternative, as opposed to just continue to transfer embryos and have miscarriages. Lisa, do you approach miscarriages any differently? I do. One of the things, and this is sort of edging over into what you all do, but as an OMD, I'm actually allowed to order testing. One of the things, I don't know what it is. It must be have something to do with the pandemic, but I've seen more women come in with like ferritin levels of like between five and 10. And a lot of women come in with like antithyroid antibody issues. And that is something that I can do something about because, you know, good, rich blood flow and making sure that the woman has the reserves for blood, good, you know, making sure that, you know, we can calm down the thyroid and just get everything settled. So her body, the way I explain it to my patients is I want your body to believe that it can actually, it has enough resources to both keep you alive and also keep this baby alive. Because in my experience, given a choice between baby and mom, evolution is always going to choose mom because mom is still going to be around to have another baby later if this one doesn't work out. So, you know, the testing just helps me say, hey, you need to eat more red meat or you need to eat more protein or you need to eat, you know, stop eating so much sugar and you need to like get really good, healthy food. The testing helps me make my point that your body has to believe that there's enough for everybody, both you and the embryo. So with repeat miscarriage, I'm looking a lot at really healthy diet, making sure that there's not something else that convinces the body that the embryo needs to go because the mom isn't going to, you know, make it otherwise. All right. So Susan, what's our second question? 
I am a recovering IV drug addict. I've been sober for five years after using for 15. My question is, how, if anything, does my former drug use impact my egg quality? That's a really good question and one we have not had previously. So I would think in part, it's going to depend on not only what you use, but what other medical ramifications you came across in that time. You know, was there an eating disorder that was a component of that, depending on what your drug of choice was? And what did your weight do during that time? What is your general medical status? Because there's a a lot of things that can really take a nosedive that it's not the drug itself, but if you were a diabetic and you have really terrible A1Cs and have had them forever and ever on men, you know, that might have a bigger impact. I don't know if that'll hold over, but I think some of the ignoring your natural health in pursuit of your addiction may spill over. And smoking too. I mean, again, I don't know what she was addicted to, but there's a reasonable chance, you know, sometimes when people drink, they smoke. And so smoking, we know, has a negative impact on egg quality and egg number. And so I think kind of the age you were then might make a difference too. And, you know, if you were younger, maybe less damage. Whereas if you were a little bit mid to late 30s at the time, you know, I think that can make a big difference. But smoking is the one thing that I do know can make a big impact. What I've seen in my experience is... I'm always more concerned about IV drug use that has like a vasoconstrictive effect where your drug use caused constriction of the blood vessels and thereby could have cut off some good blood flow. Lisa's like totally shaking her head right now. I've seen people, especially like cocaine abusers and, you know, things like this that we've ended up with diminished ovarian reserve without any other good reason. And logically that makes sense to me. And so I think it's important that I would go get it checked out, see what's there, you know, and it's a whole lot easier to fight a battle when you know what you're fighting. And obviously you're in recovery and that's awesome. And I applaud that. And this is another battle not to fight on your own. You don't have to, you know, call up your local reproductive endocrinologist and say, Hey, I want to get my tubes checked out, get my ovaries checked out, get my thyroid checked out, get all those things, you know, eyes die and T's crossed so we can make a healthy baby. That's actually another good point that when you say get your tubes checked that I hadn't thought about oftentimes when people are in the midst of an addiction, they're not necessarily making great choices or intentional choices, I guess, about who they're having sex with and are maybe not using a condom every time. And so it's a little bit easier to get chlamydia or get gonorrhea or something like that. Especially with chlamydia, lots of people never even know they were infected because it's, you know, with gonorrhea, you got the nasty green discharge with chlamydia, you know, it's not necessarily very evident. So it's good to just get things checked out. What are your thoughts, Lisa? Oh, I agree with both of you, actually. It's like the blood flow thing. Blood flow is the name of the game. (laughs) Blood flow is the name of the game because we always want to make sure that the eggs are getting a good, rich blood flow. So any drug that would cause constriction would be of concern. And it's not just at the time of the addiction. There is a long-term potential effect on the follicle. So yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think what Carrie said just about the other subsidiary health issues that could come up as a result of not taking care of yourself during that time, either malnutrition or just not making the best choices because of the grip of the addiction. So, uh, you know, that would be one of those cases where I would say, absolutely. You know, it's like, we need to get, you know, a reproductive endocrinologist involved and just sort of check out 
what is going on? If there's anything going on, if the tubes are open, what, which is, where are we? So that, as you've said, we can make sure that we have the tools to try and work with what it is that you've got right now. Yeah. All right. So now on to our topic, which I'm excited about, which is acupuncture in the fertility world. And I'm going to tease right now that we're going to do another um, episode on herbal meds and fertility in the future. So stay tuned for that. But in looking at acupuncture and how it relates to fertility, a lot of times we have women who come in and say one of two things, either what amounts to I want to do absolutely everything possible. And so what can you offer me as, you know, Susan Abney and I are all allopathic physicians. We're trained in Western medicine. We're all MDs. Um, And then also what can Eastern medicine give me? And so when I get those patients, my default is here's Lisa Grant and here is her um, (laughs) contact information. And here's Fertility Reset Online, which is her program. She's wonderful. And here you go. And then I send them (laughs) off to Lisa. And then the other group of patients that come CS are like, yeah, I really don't want anything that you have to offer me. What can you offer me that's more quote unquote natural? And I also hand over all of Lisa's information to them as well. So first of all, just to explain what it is that I am, I am what's called an ABORM fellow. And I have gotten additional postgraduate training specifically in the area of fertility, but not just fertility, how to integrate with reproductive endocrinology doctors. So what it does is we study a lot about what you all are doing so that we can make sure that what we're going to do is going to complement what's happening and not necessarily interfere with it. We love that aspect of it. Yeah. We talked to both sides of the equation here. For those that are not in Las Vegas, if you're trying to look for somebody locally, what criteria, what do you need to look for? So the first thing is, is that when you are looking for an acupuncturist who specializes in fertility, what I would call like the top rank is an ABORM certified acupuncturist. And you can go to aborm.org and you can do one of those find a practitioners because all of us who have passed this, we have, we have boards that we have to study for and we have to do a continuing CEUs, the whole bit. I mean, we are board certified. We have gotten a very rigorous training and certification process in how to make our acupuncture and how to work with you all in in what to do. Okay. Just like reproductive endocrinologists though, we're not everywhere, right? It's like in a lot of, a lot of smaller cities and towns there, you may not have access to an ABORM certified acupuncturist. So then what you're looking for is somebody who does a lot with women's health issues and fertility because they can still guide their patients in the lifestyle changes and do the acupuncture and in some cases prescribe the herbs, which we're not going to talk about this time, but you know, do the whole package, which will help improve the quality of the eggs. Because what I say to my patients is what we work on is getting your eggs as healthy as we can possibly get them in that sort of, you know, lead up to any kind of trying to get pregnant, whether it's naturally or whether it's through IVF or IUI or any of the procedures that we've got, we want you to bring your egg A game to the table. So any acupuncturist who is working with women and does fertility, you know, you just want to check out and find out how much of their time do they spend on that. And if they do a fair amount, then you're in good hands. You probably got somebody who's going to know how to really work with this. So that's what you're looking for is ABORM, you know, and you look at ABORM.org first, but then after that, an acupuncturist who specializes in fertility, who works a lot with women who are trying to get pregnant. And so Lisa, when you have someone who comes to you just for an introductory visit, like they don't necessarily know anything yet about what's going on. How do you approach it? 
So we do the same thing that y'all do. We do, you know, we do an intake, we do a history and diagnosis. Our categories are different from yours because we're looking for things that we were trained in looking at. And we talk about things like chi and blood and yin and yang. What your tongue looks like. What your tongue looks like. Yeah. We're gonna take, <laughs> we're, yes. And we're going to, very good. And we're going to take your pulses and we have 12 pulses, not one, ah. you know, and, and that's why we spend so much time in school, but it's a holistic diagnostic approach of looking at what is going on in the whole body. Because from our point of view, the ovaries and the uterus are not walking around independent of the rest of you. We can't just focus on one little place. We can certainly direct attention to that, but just focusing on that area is, isn't going to be as effective as trying to bring the whole person back into balance. So it's the Eastern approach of the whole body, but also focusing on the specific issues that might be affecting fertility, whatever that might be. And just because you brought it up, Susan, <laughs> let's talk about tongues for a minute. So we don't have CTs, MRIs, x-rays. We don't have blood tests. We don't have all of those sort of external ways of looking at things. So what we do is we ask our patients to stick their tongues out. I did acupuncture during my IVF, so. I was going to say, Susan, you sound like you have some inside scoop here. <laughs> we can see certain patterns and certain things on the tongue in terms of what the coating looks like. So most acupuncturists will tell you, please do not brush your tongue during the time that you're doing treatment because you take the coating off. And we want that coating because that coating tells us stuff about what's going on. Oh. Yeah, yeah. If it's patchy, that tells us one thing. If it's a very thick coating, that tells us something else. How long do you need to not brush your tongue? I tell my patients don't do it for at least a week or two before they come in. Really? Wow. That's a long time. Well, the tongues show us very specific things about especially fluids in the body. And because fluid is so critical in terms of blood and blood flow. And if I've got somebody who's got like damp and edema and stuff, it can help me track what's going on. The tongue changes slowly compared to pulses. So if I've got somebody, I'm like, mm, yeah, I definitely want to track that. I'll tell them not to brush their tongue until I'm happy with the way it looks. And then I'll tell them you can brush your tongue again. I would imagine that that would occasionally get kickback of my tongue is hairy. Can I brush it? <laughs> you know what? It hasn't really been a problem. They'll say that, you know, occasionally they'll come in and go, I forgot. And I brushed it. And it's like, it's okay. But it's when they realize that there's a diagnostic purpose behind it, they tend to be fairly cooperative and they do their best. It's just like when we deal with our patients and we tell them to do crazy stuff. Exactly. It's like, you know, it's like women who want to get pregnant. If you tell them why you need them to do something, they will do it. They will absolutely do it. So, yeah. So, Lisa, tell us about the 12 pulses. I'm interested to hear about that. So, Western medicine, you have one pulse. Okay. And it doesn't matter which side you take it on. And it doesn't matter what position you take it on. In Chinese medicine, there are 12 meridians, these lines of energy that we work on in the body. And we cannot remember no CT, no blood work, no MRIs. We can't see these meridians. We know where the points are on them. We can feel the points, but we can't tell what the health of the meridian is doing. So each of these meridians has a pulse point on your wrist. So for us, each side has three pulse points and each pulse point has two points on it. So you get six on the left and six on the right. And each one of these is associated with a particular meridian that's in the body. And so we're looking for things on the pulses, like how fast is it? How slow is it? How wide is it? How narrow is it? How soft, how hard? And there's a pulse called a damp 
pulse, where it's described in the classic text as the feeling of an oiled pearl in a bowl, and you're trying to catch it, and it kind of slides out. Slippery. Yeah, and that never meant anything to me. But to me, it will almost feel like, you know how when you're holding on to a rope and it'll slide through your fingers if it's wet? Mm -hmm. That's what it feels like to me, because when you have a rope, it's got those bumps on it. So it's like this pulse that has this sort of slippery feel to it. That's called a slippery pulse. But these pulses are all in your wrist. They're all in our wrist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because all of the meridians, the pulses show up here. There's also a way to do it on the ankles. And there have been occasionally patients that I've had with thoracic outlet syndrome where I can't get a pulse. So it's like, okay, well, I'm clear that you're not dead. So I'm going to get on your ankle. <laughs> and that's often what my patients will say. They'll be like, so am I dead? And I'm like, no, you're good. You're good. Um, so, <laughs> but if, if I can't feel it because of something that's going on and it happens like, or if they've had injuries, like a lot of injuries or a lot of, like maybe a lot of like shoulder surgeries, if the pulse isn't going through, I can check it again on the ankle, but I prefer it here just because it's, you know, it's second nature up here. And depending on what I'm feeling on the pulse, and especially in each one of those meridians, that can give me a clue to where there might be blocks, to where the energy isn't flowing through the way I want it to, to where there's a pathologic factor, because we have pathologic factors in Chinese medicine. They're very different from Western medicine, Chinese pathologic factors. It's not like a bacteria or a virus. It's, is it cold? Is it hot? Is it what we call a deficient, a, a deficient heat? You know, there's lots of pathologic factors and they show up on the pulses. So hmm. part of what happens is I check my patient's pulses at the beginning of a treatment, and then I'll put some needles in and I'll go back and check the pulse. At least that's the way that I do that. And it's because I'm looking for a specific shift on the pulse as a result of the needles that I put in. And then when I get the pulse shift I want, I'm like, great, okay, on to the next thing that I need to do with, okay? So these pulses are another diagnostic tool that I have that will help me figure out what's going on. Because while things like diminished ovarian reserve, we have several categories where women tend to fall into, right? It's like, if you've got a woman that comes in with DOR, diminished ovarian reserve, then she is going to have issues with, for example, Jing, and she may have what we call kidney yin deficiency, but I have had patients who are kidney yang deficient. It's not just older women. Generally, older women have this kidney deficiency, but I have younger women who have come in who have diminished ovarian reserve. Diminished ovarian reserve is a label. This is the outcome of the process. My question is, how did we get there? What sort of issue is happening in your body, in your emotions? Because we work a lot with emotions, you know, what you're eating, what is it that's causing this? And what are the different pieces that we can put into place to help resolve this so that then you won't have as much of this issue anymore. That's what the pulses are, is it's a diagnostic tool and the tongue is a diagnosis tool. And it goes along with all the bajillion questions that I'm asking all my patients about what are they eating and you know, and all this other, I ask a million questions. And at the end of this, I come up with a diagnosis and the beginnings of what is it that I wanna do to fix this. So like in Western medicine and going back to kind of your examination of the patient, you know, we kind of, or at least most of us start at the top and move down, listen to the lungs and do the pelvic exam and all that. So when you see a patient, take somebody through that doesn't know anything about seeing an acupuncture site. Do you initially interview them first? Do they take their clothes off and you do an exam on them? And if so, you've stated some of the stuff you do, but just tell us kind of what you typically do in a typical exam. Sure. So it depends a little bit on the tradition that you were trained in. There are two main schools of acupuncture and Chinese medicine in 
the US and 90% to 95% of people belong to one school and the other 5% belong to the school that I was trained in. So there are some differences in how we approach things, but in general, we'll do an interview. So just basically asking lots of questions. It's the 12 questions. Trust me, there's a lot more than 12 questions, (laughs) (laughs) but, but we're basically going over the various systems in terms of Chinese medicine to figure out what's going on. Okay. So there's an intake process. I have my patients fill out actual paperwork because that'll start to narrow it down before I even go in and start asking questions. So they fill in my intake paperwork. It's a survey questionnaire. Then I'll ask them questions that come up for me from their survey and their, their information. I also actually do a records review. I always have, Carrie knows this, I'm best friends with her fax person. Um, so, <laughs> Pretty much. Um, because I always want to see the all of the diagnostic blood work and all of the work that you all have done in terms of checking the follicle count and the blood work and FSH and LH and everything. I want to see all of it. I want to see all of it. So I put it all together and then they come in and I do the interview part where I'm talking about them and I'm asking the questions to both clarify what I want to know, but I'm also at that point starting to go, okay, so this part here where you said you don't ever eat breakfast and maybe sometimes you'll eat lunch. Let's talk about that. Um, you know, and, and then we'll have a discussion about why I need them eating more regularly. Remember the part where I said that I need you to convince your body that there's enough to go around for everybody. And that's one of the things it's like, I have a lot of women who come in, they skip breakfast. They don't eat great lunch. They'll do a a pretty decent dinner, but I'm like, so you're getting not quite as much as what you need in one go. And it's not going to work. Your body isn't going to believe that you've got enough to go around. So I'm interviewing and I'm diagnosing, but I'm also starting to health coach, because we do a lot of health coaching in terms of working with our patient to remember, remind them that we're talking about the whole person. And I can't fix the uterus and the ovaries if they're not giving the rest of their body what it needs. This is absolutely amazing. And I have to make a point that we've been at this for about 30 minutes and we have not mentioned needles. <laughs> so we do the diagnostic and then yes, so I will do palpation to see if there's something going on and do an intake where I'm checking things out, looking for anything that might be a problem. I'll check their pulses. I'll look for blocks because that was the school that I was trained in. We look for energetic blocks because I want things flowing and open. And then we start doing the fertility acupuncture based on whatever it is that I found in my intake, in the diagnosis and all of that you know review work that I did. My needles are the width of three human hairs. They are solid core. So what that means is unlike a hypodermic and unlike the needles that, you know, our patients all have to do when they're doing IVF, where they're injecting fluids because the hollow core needles are thicker and you're putting something in. It hurts, right? It just, it hurts. Some hurt more than others, (laughs) but my needles, they're the width of three human hairs and they go in for fertility. They usually don't go in more than a quarter of an inch. There might be some that go a little bit deeper depending on how large my patient is, but What I tell my patients is if it hurts, I didn't do my job right because that was the school that I was trained in. I want them to feel maybe like a zip or a tingle, or maybe sometimes they'll get like a heavy sensation, but I tell them if it's sharp or if it's pinchy or if it hurts, I need to reposition the needle because in the school that I was trained in, we don't need to make the needle hurt. I want it to be a comfortable sensation or at least a not unpleasant sensation. That's how I know I got the point. One thing that I experienced was like most of the time it didn't bother me at all, but if I came in and I was like, super stressed out about whatever. It was almost like my skin was more sensitive. It, it wasn't that the, there was any difference in really the needles or what I think the placement or anything, but it was almost like a reflection of me being on edge exemplified by what was happening. 
Well, think about it. When you're stressed out, what do your muscles do? They tense. And the skin has all those muscle connections underneath it. So yes, it's going to be more uncomfortable. If I've got somebody who's really tense, I'll actually do, I call it my the big chill. In, in Chinese medicine, we also call it the four gates. And what it is, is two points. So it's four needles, because remember, we needle usually both left and right. And what it basically does is just tells their body, chill out. Just chill out. Or Susan, did you get the one in the middle of in between your eyes and the forehead? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. This is pretty much standard practice when you're working with an, a, a fertility patient because everybody's in their head about what's going on. Everybody is always like overthinking and super anxious and really upset. I remember that. And then I remember the one like at my toes. I didn't like the toes one. Nobody likes the toes ones <laughs> because most of the really effective needle points for dealing with overall body issues are in hands below the the elbows in the hands and below the knees and the feet, because that's where all our nerve endings are. We still have to figure out a way to actually prove this. But if you look at a map of these meridians that we have and you overlay it on a map of the nervous system, there's a one-to-one correspondence. So I think what we're doing is through this wisdom of 3000 years of practice, they figured out that if you put the needle in this place, it does this thing. And what it's really doing is altering over time how the brain is working. And then it changes the signaling that it's doing to the rest of the body. There's really interesting studies and we don't have time for me to tell you all about them, but they're really cool. Um, Having to do with MRIs and looking at what happens in the brain and brain remodeling when you're doing acupuncture for carpal tunnel, because that is direct. You can see that acupuncture, as far as I know, is the only known modality that can endogenously like internal to the body, change the hormone balance. And I know this because I will have my patients test pre and post when they're just doing acupuncture and we see FSH come down and we see LH normalize and we see these things happen. So we're doing something to help change how the body reacts. But that also means that, yeah, if you're stressed out and your body is tense, I stick a needle in and your muscle is going to go, Hey, <laughs> it hurts. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, you can do that because I feel better now. <laughs> so. so one last question. Acupuncture does take a level of commitment. It is not a yes. one and done thing. Can you comment on that? It is not. And I would like to comment on that. So a lot of, and that's the reason I asked you about patients who are going to be here for a while and patients who are right in the middle of IVF, because I know that you all have patients who come in and ask for what's called the the pre and post transfer treatment. It's the polis treatment. Okay. And that was sort of the first big study that looked at acupuncture and IVF. And that's the one that because Google is a popularity contest, everyone knows about. So I will have patients who call me and who are say, you know, do you do this? And the first thing I say, actually, I don't do it. And the reason I don't do it is because it is actually most effective if it is done in the clinic and it needs to be done 30 minutes before and 30 minutes after the the transfer. If you do it offsite for the post-transfer, there is a study that says that it may actually decrease the um, implantation. And the reason for that is, is because one of the things that that treatment does is it moves blood. So that's why I asked about that. Acupuncture is a commitment. There was a study done. um, It was completed in 2015. And it was the impact of what we call, she's calling it whole systems Chinese medicine. This is the whole shebang. This is acupuncture. This is food changes. This is, you know, herbs. If you have a practitioner who is skilled in the use of herbs, it's all of the improving things. That 
dramatically increases the rate of successful retrieval transfer, and they actually followed it through live birth. But if you think about it, it's because it's complementing what's happening in IVF. Because if we can bring healthy, strong eggs that have gotten lots of blood flow and good nutrition, and I've got a woman who's not stressed out and not anxious, and because, you know, anxiety and stress shunt blood away from the ovaries and uterus. It's terrible. So, you know, anything that we can do, and if we can have three months to do this and work with her diet and get her calm and just help everything settle down, then you're going to have a much better success in terms of what happens at the retrieval because you've got eggs that have been getting the blood flow and the nutrients they've needed for three months. Mm -hmm. I also will say, though, that there's another study that came out recently that said that even if it's only during IVF, coming in for acupuncture helps because if nothing else, we can calm down their anxiety and stress. And that's worth a lot because, again, we want all that blood and all those hormone shots they're doing is telling the body, put it all in your lower abdomen, put it all in the lower abdomen, right? That's what your shots do. And if they're stressed out and anxious, it's going to shunt the blood away from that. So they got all these meds that aren't going to be doing as much as we want them to do because there's no blood flow going down there. I mean, even one acupuncture treatment where the focus is nothing but just calm her down so she feels more secure and more confident and we get more blood flow and she feels better and more relaxed, it's going to make the whole process better because IVF is not fun. It is an incredible, amazing technological like procedure that we can offer women and families that can't have children, but it's not fun. So anything I can do to help them relax and feel better is a good thing. So I'm going to put in a pitch for, yeah, three months, but even one is good. I'm ready to sign up for it right now. However, <laughs> one last question I want to ask is cost. Cause I know with our treatments, we get those same questions. What are your success rate? But what is this going to cost? And do many people have coverage in, in Nevada or in national and international companies tend to offer IVF, acupuncture for fertility as part of the package. Oh. So, you know, the big national international companies. Okay. Okay. So it really depends on who you work for. I will say, however, a vast majority don't because just like you all, fertility is not considered a medical issue. It is considered an optional Selective. Yes, the elective issue, which, you know, we all know it's not. But the fact is, is that it is considered elective. So it is not often not covered. And how much it costs depends on the practitioner. I only see one patient every 45 minutes to an hour. I cost more because I actually spend an enormous amount of time. I'm fully available to my patients. They have my cell phone number. I will answer them like at any point. So it, it, I can't answer that for all practitioners. Yeah. So I'm going to make a plug because I feel like Lisa is one of my secret weapons that, <laughs> that I use with people. She has a program called Fertility Reset Online, which is an all online program. And so it's fabulous for folks who are not here in Las Vegas and don't have the ability to just pop over to her clinic. And I'm so glad that we got to talk to you. I love every time I talk to you. I mean, this woman sends me articles at six o'clock in the morning of, hey, have you seen this? And what do you think about this? And and it's amazing to have somebody else in the community that I can back and forth with like that besides the two of you and besides my partners. If your listeners want to try the program, it's purely online. They should go to drlisagrant.com backslash fertility docs uncensored. Perfect. So if you do that, then you'll get 20% off the program. 
Awesome. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. My pleasure. Anything we can do to make this work better for everybody. So everybody go to drlisagram.com backsplash fertility docs uncensored. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from y'all. And we're on Instagram and Facebook. So stop by, say hello and um, leave us a like or a follow. You can also visit us on Fertility Docs Uncensored to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment or even leave us episode ideas. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Today's podcast is also brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you.